So, good morning. My name is Harry Strauss. I'm part of the pastoral team here at Forest Grove. And we are in a sermon series. We are in Romans. And today, we are in Romans chapter 11, which probably has to be one of the more challenging chapters in the Bible in terms of just trying to understand uh, what is being said here and equally what is not being said. I think I could approach this whole chapter in a number of different ways, but to gain some focus, I want to center in on just one question. And the question is on the screen behind us, or should be, how should Christians relate to Israel and more specifically to Jewish people? Now, as I raise that question, for some of you, you are real keeners in terms of Israel and our relationship, the church's relationship with Israel and God's plan for Israel. But then equally for uh, others of you, and maybe many of you, that probably was not or is not the pressing question of your life. I suspect you didn't get up this morning and said, well, I sure hope someone is speaking about Israel and our relationship uh, with them. But it is important. Our faith has its roots in the faith of the Jewish people. And then when you look at our Bible, of course, our Bible that we use is largely written by Jewish people. And our faith, again, finds its roots with the Jewish people. So the focus of this sermon, again, even though it could go maybe a number of different ways, is how should we posture ourselves in relationship to Israel And how should we posture ourselves more specifically with Jewish people? The reality is that the track record for Christians on this one has not always been stellar. At times, actually, it has been outright deplorable. A main reason for this is that Jews, quite some time ago, were identified and labeled as the Jesus killers which resulted over the centuries in rejection, marginalization, expulsions, and yes, even the killing of Jewish people. They were dubbed with a guilt, which their descendants then have carried through the centuries. One of the early church fathers' origins spoke of Jews as subjects of providential punishment. Uh, Part of this was fueled by the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Those of you that may be acquainted with the history of Israel, the Jew Jerusalem, it was over ransacked in 70 AD, AD by the Romans. Indicative for Christian leaders subsequent to that of God's wrath, displeasure, and rejection of Israel for having killed Jesus. Uh, Martin Luther close to 1,500 years post that event, after the destruction of Jerusalem, still wrote in those very terms. Jews deserved this punishment and was clearly evident by the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Jews, though not the primary target, were among those that were killed during the Crusades. If leaders in society could identify or justify the killing of Muslims, then they could equally readily justify the killing of the Jesus killers. Jews also faced banishment and expulsion from various countries. So, for example, in 1492, Jews were expelled from Spain, and thousands of them had to leave the country of Spain. 
Martin Luther for all of his strengths and many strengths for being the lead voice in the Reformation, wasn't that kind in his views regarding Jewish people. Initially, he was pro-Jewish, but in the absence of the Jews turning to Christ, he became anti-Semitic. In 1543, Luther published a small little book on the Jews and their lies in which he said that the Jews are of the devil, they are poisonous, they are greedy, they are vipers, and commends the actions of Spain some 50 years earlier for expelling the Jews. And Luther proposed measures against the Jews, which included suggesting that their schools and synagogues should be burned. Yes, Martin Luther, in here in here, confiscating their literature, which was, in his estimation, blasphemous, prohibiting their rabbis to teach, appropriating their wealth, and then also denying Jews safe conduct. And then later, much later, his views surfaced with Nazi Germany, And the debate exists among scholars as to his level of influence. Some say that the Nazis were anti-Semitic to the core and simply revived Luther's writings, where others would suggest his influence was more than that. Now, it should be noted that Lutherans worldwide denounce Luther's anti-Semitic views. They do not identify with those views. And it should also be noted that Pope John Paul II, I believe it was in the year 2000, apologized for the anti-Semitic actions and sentiments of the Catholic Church. But the history still stands that Christians haven't always been that kind in relationship to Jewish people. And beyond the church itself, as well beyond Christianity, I mean anti-Semitism exists in our world. Matter of fact, I saw an article, you'll see it on the screen uh, directly behind me here. This is an article in the Star of Phoenix only a couple of weeks ago, May the 10th, anti-Semitic acts on the rise in Canada. Romans chapter 11 speaks of God's plan for Israel, and then in turn also in some very powerful, strong statements, indicates a primary way in which we, or how we as Christians could and should relate to the Jewish people. So in Romans chapter 11, there are two questions that are asked. It basically provides the outline for this book. The first one that we'll look at, did God reject his people in verse 1? And if not, then then should we reject them as well? And then the second question is, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? And if the answer is not, and there is promise, and that would suggest a certain mindset in our relationship with them as well. And then we will look at the implication and the application that comes through, especially in the latter verses, in terms of what should our posture be in relationship with Israel and the Jewish people. So, the material is kind of complicated, but follow me along. And we'll look at, first of all, these two questions And then we'll look at this implication that grows out of this. The first question, did God reject his people? Verses 1 and 2. I asked then, did God reject his people? 
by no means. And so there's emphasis with that by Paul the Apostle. By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham, from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. So there's his answer. So why is he asking this question, and why is he addressing this question? With the fall of humanity, the sin of Adam and Eve, God set a redemptive plan into motion through the calling of Abraham and his descendants. His plan was initiated with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. His plan was carried forward with Joseph and Judah and their descendants. It eventually included Moses and Joshua and the judges that followed. He became the God of Gideon. He is the God of Ruth. His plan was carried forward with Saul and David and Solomon. And then the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and all the other prophets were inspired to speak into that redemptive plan. And that plan ultimately was carried forward to Joseph and Mary with the birth of the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God, followed by his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, in order that people might be saved from their sin. And thus far, virtually all the players in this redemptive plan are of Jewish descent. The story that we are now a part of has its roots with the Jewish people and their faith. With the genesis of the Christian of Christianity, this faith in Christ Jesus as the Messiah was initially embraced by at least some to maybe many Jewish people as evidenced by the book of Acts. But at the same time, the Jews as a whole didn't embrace Jesus as their Savior, which for Paul, the apostle, who himself was a Jewish person, steeped in Jewish life, was a conundrum. What about the Jewish people and God's plan? Did God, and here's the core of chapter 9, 10, 11 in part, did God fail in his plan with the Jewish people? And given their unbelief, were they now rejected as the people of God? The response, we've already read the response. The response is swift and decisive. By no means. It says, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. And so the bottom line on God's plan, at least one of the statements, one of the questions here is, Israel is not rejected. And if they're not rejected by God, they shouldn't be rejected by Christians. Of interest, as I work through this, uh, Martin Luther, in his little booklet here, didn't interact at all with Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, which is one of the primary biblical statements on a relationship with the Jewish people. Uh, he completely ignores even chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 here, in terms of his assessment of Jewish people. <clears throat> so, in the verses that immediately follow down to verse 10, Paul speaks of a remnant, which we will comment on a little later. The main point of the following verses is that not all believe. Actually, many of the Jewish people don't believe. And the reality is there are many whose hearts become very hard, which then prompts Paul to ask a second question. <coughs> Excuse me. The second question comes in verse 11, and the question is, did they now stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? 
He asked the question in verse 11. Again, I asked, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. And again, that said with emphasis. Rather, because of their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches would their full inclusion bring? It's a somewhat similar question to verse 1, though with this added component. Is their being out of step with God permanent? Are they beyond recovery? Is their unbelief permanent? And the response summarized is basically, as we'll read those verses all the way down to verse 26, the response basically, as the people of the Jewish faith have contributed to our faith, so we in time, in mysterious ways, will make them envious and play a part in their salvation and in their turning back to belief in Jesus Christ. So we, in time, the Gentiles, will provoke at least a remnant to faith. So, let's read verses 13 to 26. I'll make a few comments along the way as we go through those verses. And uh, we'll also pick up on some of the indicators on how we are to relate to Jewish people. Uh, Again, up front, heads up, it's complicated material. Follow along as closely as you can. Uh, But uh, he's making a point here that um, they are not beyond the point of recovery. Verse 13. He says, I'm talking to you Gentiles. My guess is most, if not all, in this audience here are Gentiles, so this is material for us. I'm talking to you as Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance of the gospel be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, the Jewish people, and you, though a wild olive shoot, the Gentiles, have been grafted in among the others and now share the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. So we in our Christian faith, our root is in, in, in the Jewish faith. Verse 19, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. tremble. Verse 21, but if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. (coughs) Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. And after all, if you were cut off, cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? <clears throat> the imagery here is of an olive tree where the Jewish people have been broken off and we, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, have been grafted in. But the suggestion here is that Jews who do not believe in Jesus can still be grafted back into this new family of faith. So the question, going back 
Have they fallen beyond recovery? The answer on that is no. God's overall plan is that they will be grafted back in and they, there will be a turning of Jewish people to belief in Jesus Christ. And then with the final two verses that we'll pick up with this text, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery. And Paul identifies this as a mystery, and he really picks it up in the doxology as well about how unsearchable these things are. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced the hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. So clearly, they have not stumbled beyond the point of recovery. As a matter of fact, the language here is, all Israel will be saved. And the fair question that the text raises for us right away is, what does this mean, that all Israel will be saved? I suspect that more has been written about that little phrase, all Israel will be saved from this chapter than the rest of the chapter combined. Because there is so much debate and uh, so many different perspectives that could be reflected on just those few words. But two leading interpretations. It means exactly what it says. There is a time coming, and there would be those who would rally and line up with this interpretation. There is a time coming when all Jews living at that time, uh, usually with a terminal generation, is understood, when all those Jews will be saved. If that were to happen in our generation, that would mean about, I think, my, if I read right, I think there's about 15 million Jews in the world at the present time. And so if that's the interpretation, and if that happened in our generation, there would be approximately 15 million people that would come to faith in our world. A second interpretation that is widely embraced as well is that all Israel, even though it says all Israel, really means a remnant of Israel. And in the Old Testament, at different times and at different places, people will speak of all Israel, but they really have a remnant in mind. And it's language that they're using. And if we're to go down that interpretive path, that would, in a sense, be consistent with what we're seeing in chapters 9, 10, and 11. The verses that we didn't read from 3 down to 10, Paul is talking about a remnant. Uh, then you go back earlier in chapter 9, verse 27, he says only the remnant will be saved. And so if you take it from that perspective, sometimes language is used where one may say all, but only a portion or a remnant is being really referenced. I have an illustration on this, and this illustration is... Illustrations are only good so far, and this one only goes so far, but it's, it goes back to my days in Regina. I didn't get to a lot of the Rough Rider games, but occasionally we did, but generally we did not. And I remember listening to a Rough Rider game on the radio, and it was a sellout crowd, and they had people everywhere in Taylor Field. And somewhere along the way, the commentator made the comment. He said, all Regina, all Saskatchewan is at the game. And I, I looked at myself and I thought, no, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm not there. And, and if I've got my calculations right, at least 170,000 people in Regina are not. But, but, but he used the language. And I know in that situation it's an exaggeration. This isn't an exaggeration here in, in this verse right here. But sometimes if we can say all, or at least the Jewish people in the Old Testament say it all, but a remnant is in mind. 
the main point here is that anywhere, whichever, whichever way that you go interpreting this, and there would at least be another, another key way of interpreting this as well, but anywhere from a remnant to all will be saved. There are those that will be saved, which addresses Paul's second question. There are Jewish people who decide to embrace belief in Jesus Christ, in Yeshua. They have not fallen beyond recovery. So, I know that Romans 11 wasn't your pressing question of the day, but two main questions that summarize this book, and then providing the plan, God's plan for Israel. They are not rejected, and then more than that, there are those that will be saved. So, how should that relate to us? And more specifically, what should our posture be to the Jewish people and to Israel itself? Well, this text, three times, I'll only give you one verse on the screen, gave the answer when we read it. Romans eleven nineteen to 20 is the one I'll put on the screen or we'll have on the screen. You will say then branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in, granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. And here it is. This is the application line of Romans chapter 11. In relationship to Jewish people, do not be arrogant. There it is. And in case we had missed it, he says it two more times. In verse 17, do not consider yourselves to be superior. We as Gentiles in relationship to Jewish people. And then in verse 25, do not be conceited. So, clearly, some of the forefathers with the Christian faith related to the Jewish people with arrogance. I'm ashamed of that, and I suspect you would be ashamed of that as well. We obviously need to be free of any such arrogance. We need to be people of humility in respect to the Jewish people. And in my estimation, if I could suggest, I think it should be more than just a posture of humility. In my reading on this, I came across a line uh, where someone made the comment that says we need a theology and a practice of esteem over a theology and a practice of contempt. And a theology and a practice of contempt is arrogance. A theology and a practice of contempt is anti-Semitism. We need a theology of esteem uh, for Israel and the Jewish people. I am mindful of Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, the opening verses of this whole section, 9, 10, and 11. And I recognize that for us, and, and Bruce is right when he shared this two or three weeks ago, that for many of us, we are apt to sort of skip over 9, 10, and 11. We could literally go from chapter 8 to chapter 12. And yet for Paul, this Jewish believer, who was immersed in this question, some people suggest that the, the, the thematic center of the book of Romans are these very chapters right here, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And so when he opens up this chapter in chapter 9, he talks about his own people and he says, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory. There's the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Now, 
He's not saying we need to have a theology and practice of esteem there, but it sure feels like it. There is stuff here in the Jewish faith. Our Bible, all the way from Genesis to Malachi, Jewish, Jewish, Jewish background and coming from the people of Israel. So as we have traveled through Israel, Judy and I, at different points of time, uh, and indeed here as we've interacted with Jewish people at home, I want to view the Jewish people with an added measure of esteem and respect for the contribution and the fact that the Messiah came from within their tradition and their background. My faith journey is, and in my notes here, I have the word is in capital letters, capital I, capital S. My faith journey is because of that which started with God calling out Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and the beginning of the Jewish nation. Uh, On the screen, you'll see a picture of, this is Abraham's gate in Israel. This, and it's all filled in in the middle now, but those are steps going up and those, uh, let's go back to the first picture first, don't stay there. Those are steps going up and and the gate was filled in, but um, the belief is, that Abraham went through this gate uh, 3,500 years ago. And um, it leads into the city of what is now, or what was Laish, and then eventually became the city of Dan. And then this archaeological place was found, and uh, confidence that this was the gate into the city of Laish. And in all likelihood, Abraham went through that gate about 3,000, 3,500 years ago. Uh, They say all likelihood because as he was coming from the north and he was traveling into the Holy Land, this 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 was in a sense the highway, and then it came through that gate into uh, the community of Laish. Now, forgive me, those of you who have heard me, you know, there are things you can say with confidence about traveling. If I were traveling from Saskatoon to Regina, in all likelihood I would go through the community of Chamberlain. Would you not say so? And we could say with confidence, Harry went through Chamberlain as he went to Regina. Abraham came through this gate as he came into the promised land. You know, when we were there, and we could go to the second picture, the second picture gives a little bit more perspective. There are people here on the right-hand side, and you see the uh, gate a little bit further away. But when I'm there, I'm, I'm connected with Abraham of Genesis chapter 12, and just the sense of added esteem for the Jewish people and that which transpired that many years ago when God called out Abraham. And then it becomes Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Judah and all the others that followed down. And ultimately, to, for my benefit, my faith journey is because that which God started with Abraham. So, how should we relate to the Jewish people based on Romans chapter 11. Here's my summary statement basically on the screen. Given that God has not rejected them, and given that he has a plan for them, our posture should be that of humility, marked by esteem, with no trace of anti-Semitism. One qualifier to that. This does not mean that Christians cannot speak 
against injustices wrought by modern-day Israel. Given Genesis chapter 12, sometimes I feel that there are those who suggest we can't say anything negative in a prophetic way about the modern-day Israel. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. The suggestion is that we will be cursed of God if we say anything negative. The suggestion is that I will be cursed if I say something negative in terms of Israel and its relationship to Palestinians. Reality is that in the past, when and where Israel sinned, injustices included, the prophets came calling, challenging the thinking and the deeds of the very people of God, fully conscious of the fact that Genesis 12 in this line about cursing and blessing was already in existence. I would suggest there's an equal appropriateness for Christians well-versed with the Holy Land where needed to speak into that situation and to challenge Israel modern day. But staying with Romans chapter 11, the bottom line is given that God has not rejected them and given that he has a plan for them, our posture should be that of humility marked by esteem with no trace of anti-Semitism. God Almighty, we pause before you and we are ashamed of the history of Christianity at different places in terms of the anti-Semitism that was right at the core of the Christian faith for some people. And we, um, we're ashamed of that. But thank you, Lord God, for the apologies that have been there, the announcements that have happened uh, even in the Lutheran, uh, Lutheran denominations around the world. Thank you, Lord God, for this pa- passage of Scripture that speaks about our relationship with these people And, Lord God, may we truly have that spirit of esteem, that spirit of humility in relationship to them in terms of our relationships with Jewish people. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.